This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I distinctly remember in college um, this very strange moment at orientation. And we're all sitting in this circle, fresh, wide-eyed freshmen, um, getting to know each other, doing some probably silly icebreaker activity. And one of the questions was, how many siblings do you have? Um, The university that I went to is a a Catholic college, and and I had no doubt in my mind that, you know, many of the people sitting in that circle with me probably had many, many siblings. Um, And sure enough, I was correct as the as the people went around the circle, and I've got six, I'm the oldest of, of nine, I'm in the middle of 12, I mean, just a, a lot of kids, big families, and that's beautiful. And it got to me, and I said, I'm the oldest of two, I have a younger sister, um, she's four years younger than me, and the guy that was sitting next to me turned and said, oh, are your parents not Catholic? And I just turned back to him and, and very snarkily said, um, no, they're very Catholic, they go to daily mass, and they actually teach marriage prep for our diocese, and um, yeah, there's just two of us. I hope that's okay with you. And I (laughs) distinctly remember this conversation because it was such a strange moment where never before in my life had I been confronted with the reality that sometimes there is an idolization of a big family, and there's this assumption that is weirdly made that you're not Catholic enough if you don't have the 15-passenger van, and the dozen kids in tow, taking up an entire pew. It was actually not um, the last time that a comment like that would be made. And in fact, even as a, an adult with children of my own, from time to time I, I, I hear those comments both made to me, oh, well, you only have one and one on the way, you've been married for four years, what's, what's the holdup? All the way to, to friends of mine who have been asked, well, why don't you have kids yet, or why do you only have one or two kids And I think we can say with um, absolute definitive clarity here at the top of this episode that that is patently a a bad way to approach anybody because we really truly have no idea what's going on within a marriage, what's going on within somebody's health, what's what's going on with, um, with life that that family is dealing with, is walking through, is is living. There's an idolization that can happen. This belief that the more kids I have, the more Catholic I am, the holier I am, the better shot I have at heaven. And then sometimes this false assumption of, well, if a couple is not having many, many children, then they must be contracepting. Or if a, if a couple is, is, not, um, is not actively talking all the time about how they want more kids and that they're desperate for more children, that, that, that maybe they're... They're misguided and they care more about money or they care more about status and influence. And there's such, um, there's, there's more to the story than we can often see on the surface. And if we're going to talk about Catholic family life, and we've talked about fatherhood, and we've talked about motherhood, and we've talked about marriage, and we've talked about raising kids in the faith, and, and we absolutely have to have a conversation, full stop, about infertility and about the struggle sometimes to have children but then also the beauty and the gift that can be given in carrying a cross. The cross of infertility, which even that language, as we're going to hear today, is, is sometimes not great. 
and, and is sometimes it again it continues to idolize this idea of the cookie cutter Catholic family of twelve kids in the fifteen passenger van. When we were planning out this topic, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm kind of having even a hard time leading into the episode because I don't think we talk about it enough in the church, at least not openly, at least not vulnerably. There were a number of different people that, that I could have turned to to have this conversation, people who have never been able to have children or people who have one children, one child, excuse me, and then are dealing with secondary infertility or, or, or people who have lost children and have struggled through miscarriage and grief repeatedly. Um, but there was one person I absolutely knew I wanted to include it was my good friend, and I know I always say that these people are my good friends, but I kind of have the best job in the world that I get to meet all these people, um, Dr. Tim O'Malley. The first time I ever heard Tim speak was at Notre Dame Vision way back in 2011, and he's actually giving a talk about infertility. A man standing in front of a room of like 500 high school students on the University of Notre Dame's campus talking about infertility, and it was so vulnerable, and it was so real, and it was so raw. Um, Tim and his wife have since uh, been blessed with two children through the miracle and the gift of adoption. But Tim still speaks very openly about this um, journey that they have walked and about, and I love this phrasing, the charism of infertility. What it means for their marriage, what it means for their family life, what it means for their ministry, what it means for him as a professor and, 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 and as a father. It's not often that we sit down with a guy and have a conversation about infertility, but I think that's precisely what Ave Explores endeavors to do. Um, we want to have those conversations that maybe you've never heard before and tell those stories that I think could really help people explore and unpack something uh, that hopefully moves their heart. You know, this is, of course, part of our Ave Explores series on Catholic family life. And we've had these podcasts telling these really great stories. We've had these Facebook Live conversations about uh, really vulnerable, raw things, most recently one on miscarriage and grief. Um, we're going to continue having these conversations. There's more still to come in this season. But this one's unique because having a conversation with a father, with a man, with a husband, with a theology professor, no less, about infertility and what that looks like and, and what that experience is like and how family life is lived even through that struggle is, I think, really unique and beautiful, and I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. So without further ado, a conversation with Dr. Tim O'Malley about infertility, adoption, and, kind of close to the end, dating. Well, Dr. Tim O'Malley, thanks for joining us on Ave Explorers. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to see you in your home office. Um, if I were to bump into you in an elevator, what would I learn about you within the first 30 seconds? Who are you? Where are you? What are you doing? So I uh, am a professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I am in charge of online learning for the McGrath Institute for Church Life, our, our online courses. Uh, I'm actually a liturgical and sacramental theologian by training. And so uh, I'm also the academic director of the Center for Liturgy. Uh, I, I have uh, two kids. Uh, who are seven and three, and I'm married to Kara for almost, uh, I think we're approaching 15 years. We are approaching 15 years. The word almost <laughs> makes it seem like I don't know that. <laughs> you know that. I know you know that. Y'all met at Notre Dame, correct? We did, yeah. We met in um, 2003, summer 2003. Awesome. And now, did in the summer of 2003, when you met your wife, did you know that you always wanted to be 
a PhD theologian who came back to Notre Dame? Like, what's the story there? How did you end up back at your alma mater? Well, it's a somewhat interesting story. Yeah, so um, I think I knew that I wanted to do graduate school. I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. At the time, I was uh, actually on my way to, to seminary. And so we met, and I uh, decided not to head to seminary. And then, um, you know, basically from there, I continued on to do a master's degree in theology at Notre Dame, um, and then went on to get a doctorate. So I think I knew by then, um, at least by, you know, 2006, I'd say that I knew where I was going. Um, you know, it, I, I didn't really grow up with academics around, so I didn't know what an academic was. I didn't know mm -hmm. what they did. I didn't know what a PhD was. So mm -hmm. I, it's not like I always grew up with this dream in mind. And why sacramental theology? Why was that the focus and not scriptural or moral? Well, my own sort of background, I think, um, uh, my senior year, I began to take classes in like liturgical sacramental theology. Uh, I had a liturgical history course that kind of changed the trajectory of what I was doing. I did my senior thesis on the development of the liturgy of the hours. So the history of it from early Christianity till today. And then I really got in during graduate school and my master's degree into like studying, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, uh, up into you know, sort of contemporary sacramental theologians. And I was always sort of interested in material embodied stuff, like how you worship God for your body, what that means, how the material world is changed and sanctified uh, through the work of the church. So it was just sort of an interesting topic to me to see its, its development, its history, uh, and uh, actually kind of how beautiful every dimension of the sacraments really are and their, what they actually claim that in some way, shape or form, human beings are invited to partake in divine life. Mm -hmm. So if I'm listening to this and I hear that, you know, description of what you do and I'm intrigued and I want to learn more, I mean, how, how does a person begin to incorporate that branch of theology and study into their, into their daily life? Not the question I was intending on asking, but I'm just curious because we have a lot of armchair theologians of the church these days or people who want to study more and go deeper. Like what's step one and learning a little bit more about what you've dedicated your life to. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a great introduction to sacramental theology I have found is actually, I don't always recommend the catechism right away because I think in some ways the danger of recommending the catechism, I think a lot of people approach it as a dictionary of settled thought. And, and the catechism, I think certainly, um, the, the catechism's goal is not to give you areas where there's agreement or disagreement, or disagreement but to give you like sort of areas where you know, we're pretty sure on doctrine. And so I think to start with the sacraments, it's not bad to start with the catechism. Um, I, a lot of sort of the works that I think are sort of genius in, in sacramental theology still, you know, I think Thomas Aquinas is so subtle in sacramental theology in the third part of his Summa. Um, he has at least up through uh, the sacrament of, uh, he, he, he sort of gets into penance. He, he never finished it. And, but, but you find a lot about the sacraments and sort of commentaries on Thomas on the sacraments. And so, you know, I think these are sort of great places to begin. I'm not sure that I would pick up Thomas directly. Uh, I force my students to do so, but to find a good sort of Thomistic teacher. I mean, I know the, the Thomistic Institute has some great introductions to Thomas and the sacraments. And so it's a good sort of jump in. Uh, history stuff, I think if, if I was to jump into like liturgical history, Notre Dame has some great people there. Uh, Max Johnson, who's one of the professors here, has some great books on this. 
Uh, and then, of course, um, I think uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, for some of like the full theology of the liturgy, what it is and what it does, uh, there's still no one better than that. And like the spirit of the liturgy or in, um, he has a couple of articles in his full vo volume on the theology of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned too that you, you worked and studied on the history of the liturgy of the hours. That's kind of how I actually got to know you weirdly i heard you tell a story one time and then saw a, a later on like a social media post about praying with your son at night and doing chant um and your son is seven now tommy is his name i believe yes. uh, i remember that because it's my husband's name um and we're friends i've seen his picture you actually named him after your husband after my husband yeah who i didn't even know seven years ago so it's even more appropriate we are we are full of wisdom. <laughs> but I, I am struck by, and I kind of want to give you space to tell us a little bit about how you pray together as a family. I mean, a seven and a three-year-old doing chants doesn't sound like um, what most families are probably doing, but you do it in such an accessible way that I think, I think listeners would be very intrigued by that. Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, well, actually, it's, it's very, I'll take a step back. My wife and I, you know, when we were doing marriage prep there, I was like, well, you have to find a way to, to learn to pray together. We were notoriously bad and still actually are about praying together alone. My spiritual life is very grounded in a kind of monastic contemplative tradition. My wife does a lot of her prayer with groups of friends and reading sort of spiritual books together and talking about them, which is very different people. Um, and, but then, you know, Tommy enters our life and we have to figure out like, how do we pray with a child, right? Like now we recognize that, um, you know, dividing up prayer into our respective realms is insufficient. So um, I, I think we, we settle on the hours. We, we both found the hours kind of agreeable, or at least a version of the hours uh, for compline or night prayer. And it's sort of our major moment of prayer for the day is right before the children go to bed. I mean, we do things at grace and throughout the day, but you know, what we'll do is we'll, um, we might sing a, a very short hymn Often we let the children choose the hymn. Then we'll do something like uh, we chant everything, and we don't. We use like a very simple chant tone, uh, something like you know, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and, and they respond back. And so this simple chant tone allows the kids to concentrate. A lot of kids um, need music to make sense of things. Actually, a lot of adults too. And so they they kind of pick things up, right? It's how our daughter learned, you know, who's who's three can chant the Our Father, and she can chant basic sort of Latin prayers because she, she sort of just picked it up. And so we chant everything. We'll do often a short scripture, very basic um, intercessory prayer, and we'll conclude with the Marian antiphon for the night. So, so nothing more really than five or 10 minutes. During Advent, we add uh, the danger of fire, and <laughs> we do the same during Easter. And so it gives it, you know, an opportunity to sort of ground ourselves in this, this prayer. It's not complicated. We don't plan a lot beforehand. We do the same things all the time. It allows the kids to enter into prayer and actually ourselves to enter into prayer as a family in a kind of concrete way. And I mean, I've heard you then talk about how your kids have gone to the Basilica. You've taken them to mass on Sunday and all of a sudden you have kids that stand up and just chant like they, it's part, it becomes part of their life. Indeed, yeah, no, our son is very loud when he chants. Um, although, you know, no one is allowed to chant right now uh, in Correct. the COVID. But, um, you know, I mean, I think that's that's been one of the hardest parts actually about something like COVID right, for us is because it's, you know, music is so integral to our life. And the only gift of it is that we still have part of it in our lives because our son, because we continue to chant at home, right? Mm -hmm. So 
we continue to have that music integral to who we are. Well, speaking of COVID, I mean, just to, to pivot for a moment, the world's been shut down for a few months, including Sunday Mass. How has your family, um, I mean, have y'all been YouTube masters or y'all doing a liturgy of the word as a family? How have y'all continued to make Sunday sacred together uh, in the midst of being cut off from the life of a parish? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Like the very first Sunday, we tried to tune into our local parish mass on the TV, and that was a disaster for our children. They immediately saw that as the space where they watch fun things. Um, and they were shocked by it. Uh, and so there was a lot of violence, throwing of things, sorrow, and that was the end of that. Um, we then actually moved to my office, where actually this is being filmed right now, and set up a kind of icon corner, uh, which actually hilariously can be seen. Uh, you, the audience, can't see it, but uh, Katie. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, and so we set up an icon corner, which includes a book of the Gospels and a Paschal candle that we uh, received from one of our parishes. And so that became the center place of our prayer, even when we listen to Mass. So mm -hmm. the soundscape of the Mass is something we still listen to and even look at. But it's very important to us that, um, you know, at the consecration, when we have to be at home, our kids had a cold this week, and so we didn't go. Um, uh, and actually, our kids are not going to Mass at all. So no matter what, we're trying to do this. Mm -hmm. um, we spend time sort of kneeling before the crucifix, even during the Mass, the consecration. We don't kneel at Eucharistic prayer. We don't kneel to a screen. We kneel toward the crucifix, which is not, of course, the Eucharist, but at least that's a kind of traditional devotional practice mm -hmm. that resonates with the liturgy, and it faces us toward then the coming of Christ in his sacrifice, even if we can't receive it. And so I think that's been, a, that's one of the key ways we keep uh, Sundays sanctified um, when we're not able to go to the Eucharist, uh, at least, and, and our kids are not going at all, so we're trying to do something in this space every Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important to kind of keep them focused on the imagery and the iconography. So it's A, recognizable when we do get to go back, but but you know, it refocuses the mind. It, it's helpful for everyone. Um, I, you talk very lovingly, of course, about your family. Um, I've seen you interact with them before. Uh, your son and your daughter are adopted. Um, and and that's because your wife and you have, have struggled with and have carried the cross of infertility. I'm, I'm referencing an article I remember reading a couple years ago um, on the charism of infertility. I remember reading it for the first time and and, and I was so struck by the beauty of, of talking about infertility in a way, you say it beautifully in the article, like it's not a problem to be fixed so much as something that a couple experiences that great holiness can come from. So, so tell us a little bit about your wife and yours story with that cross of infertility and then of course the adoption of your children. Yeah, I mean, um, we always had thought about adoption. I think that's the integral part of our story, even as we were preparing for marriage, we, we felt a kind of call towards adoption and, and foster care. Um, what, can I ask why? Like, what, what was the impetus of that? Well, I mean, we always, we had a kind of, uh, I've, been, I've been very influenced by, by St. Benedict. And uh, I think in some ways we placed our marriage uh, under his patronage in some way, shape or form. And the radicality of hospitality that the, each person who comes to your roof is Christ and you treat them as Christ and you make space for their arrival as Christ. And so in some ways that was integral to our marriage, which was, you know, our home and our door should be open and not a kind of purely closed environment. 
Um, I think we were called then for, from that. And so when we, you know, like a lot of couples, we, we found out we were infertile. We went through a variety of tests. Um, I think for me, the hardest thing was, was starting to perceive the possibility that for us, infertility was the gift that would enable us to offer this return gift of love. Um, you know, most of life, as I tell my undergraduates, um, a lot of life is full of things that you don't get to choose. And a lot of the things that you encounter are actually kind of dreadful. And God works in this mode, not so much through pulling the strings so that these terrible things happen to you, but so that even in the midst of this sorrow, you can offer yourselves in love in return. Um, I say this because I, I think for us, the key moment for, for me, and I think to a certain degree, my spouse was us going to mass regularly and offering up this sorrow during the Eucharistic prayer. And as we were offering up this sorrow, we found a new space for love and a gift in our hearts that we previously lacked. It took a lot of time. And um, we decided to adopt and to be formed for foster care. And so we, in, while waiting for adoption, we went through a process of foster care. And then in December of 2012, we just received a phone call uh, of a child who was gonna be born. And we said yes to that. And uh, that, that child, our son entered our lives in 2012. And our daughter came to us in a slightly even more unexpected way in, uh, you know, it's harder for me to remember years anymore. But in 2017, so April of 2017, she sort of came into our lives. And in some ways, it was just a gift. I think a lot of people talk about adoption as some sort of great uh, work of remarkable saving of the world. For us, it's so tied to our Benedictine sort of spirituality that it's just us welcoming kids into our home. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it, right? So I'm doing the bare minimum in my expectation that a Christian ought to do. So in a lot of ways, our adoption story is kind of boring simply because it's how we opened our home to the life that needed a place to hang out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's that it's the same concept. I think that when we say, well, we're open to life, but it's not a, well, I'm open to life under my circumstances. I'm, I'm, I'm open to life period. And that could come in the form of adoption. It could come in the form of, of, of a child that I give birth to that could come in the form of a foster care situation for for however long or short that time might be I a lot of my friends that have struggled with infertility and, and I have a handful um, I think most people listening to this either chose to listen to the episode because they're dealing with it themselves or they know somebody that has struggled with this um, there can be a little bit of anger and resentment when carrying the cross of infertility and you spoke about that you know it, it, it took time to kind of offer that up especially through the Eucharistic prayer what words of advice do you have for that person for that couple um, who is really in the throes of the struggle and can't see the through line to the hopefulness that I think you, you've shared. Yeah, I mean, I would say like part of the problem is how the through line is often presented, right? Mm -hmm. So the through line is presented as an, okay, so we're infertile, so therefore we adopt, it's all good, right? Um, no, you're still infertile and you adopted in that mode. And that means that like a, a child who's born to you will not come in the same way. Likewise, adoption, I think, as we have to recognize, is not 
is not biological parenting in just another mode, right? You're in, someone is entering your home in a rather difficult situation. And so in a lot of ways, I think the problem is too sort of carefully trying to figure out, I think people too quickly wanna give you the through line, right? Like they wanna sort of show you, okay, if this happens, then you'll be happy, then everything will be fine, the end. Um, for us, for example, after we adopted, often it was the case that people would say, oh, well now you'll have a child of, of your own, which of course was offensive in two modes, right? One, that's not how biology works. And number two, the child who came to our life was in essence, at least partially our own, the moment that we began to feed them and were legally responsible for them. So, um, you know, I don't think there's a through line to get through. There is the, the cross. And this is another place I think, I think, that the more that we as communities of the church, communities within the church, recognize that everyone is actually suffering through something. And mm -hmm. that there's something about American life that makes, in American preaching in particular, don't get me started on this, where the narrative oh, has to started. be, uh, the narrative has to be like, everything is great. Well, guess what? It's not for a lot of people all the time. There are people who are hungry and thirsty and poor and their kids are in prison and, um, they had a miscarriage and like, there's a million terrible things that have happened in people's lives. And I think in the church, we have a capacity to have that transformed through Christ. And that takes time, it takes patience, it takes a life of prayer. And the better we get as a church about talking about the darkness and not just the light, the, the actually the greater appreciation we'll have for the light. And so, you know, my advice to couples is, you know, be patient with people. I, I was very angry and, I got fairly angry at people who misspoke or, or, you know, they're, everybody is trying to do their best and some people are better than others. Subtle corrections are better than really angry corrections. Um, but I, I think the big thing is to remember that every human being in the entire world experiences this diminishment and every Catholic does. So we're all in it together and it's figuring out how to offer our lives up as the sacrifice of love. Really, I like that, figuring out how to offer our lives in that sacrificial mode as parents, that happens every day, as spouses, that happens every day, um, fertile or infertile, a dozen kids, one child, no child, and any, anything in between. Right? The child doesn't make the marriage successful, so to speak, right? The, the children are a fruit of marriage, but fruitfulness comes in marriage in a variety of different ways. Yeah, that's right. Balthazar, I think, really importantly, Hans Ernst von Balthazar says that the first fruit of marriage is the cross. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the source of it. It's the self-giving love. And that is the space of fruitfulness, right? Children come, and that's a, a, a sort of further sign of that fruitfulness, the work of education, the work of creating spaces of hospitality, spaces of evangelization in the world. All of that is part of this. But we, we don't the moment you think you can control in marriage either how many kids you have, how many kids you won't have, how many control is actually the, the sort of key problem, right? It's the giving up of control for the sake of love. Well, so that leads me to kind of a pivot moment then. Um, the giving up of control is part of the fruitfulness of love. Um, you teach a course to undergrads about marriage. I don't know if it's the one that you've got coming up this semester, but I, I know you've taught that before and you have a book about kind of the hookup culture. You spend your time with young adults and have the opportunity to really preach to them the truth and the goodness of, of marriage, of discernment, of fruitful love. Tell us a little bit about how 
your desire to teach that course came about and why that course is so critically important in so many people's lives. So yeah, I am teaching it this go around. I have oh, nice. 250 students in COVID in a 950 person auditorium. So it will be quite a, an event. Um, I started teaching the course partially because um, the rates of marriage I noticed had continued to decline in the church. I think within, uh, I haven't looked at the data this most recent sort of year, but marriage uh, sort of sacraments of marriage decline was somewhere between 17 to 20% over the last um, 10 years. And so this marks declines in marriage as a whole nationwide. And what I found when I talked to undergraduates was not necessarily like some radical rejection of, of family life and marriage and, and those things, but all sorts of other problems, right? So there was a fear of commitment, a fear of communion. They didn't actually know how to talk to one another. Um, courtship in any way, shape or form is an unknown phenomenon. And so I wanted to offer a possibility of thinking with the students together about what marriage is according to Catholicism, what makes it a sacrament, what's its history, and how they could existentially or personally appropriate some of these questions so that they could live a great life in light of them. Um, and so I started teaching the course like six years ago. It started with like 60, and then it, you know, it's up to 250. And I think it, it, it's the perfect sort of image of why something like theology still matters, um, because it really does find a way to engage the students intellectually, but also personally, in deep questions that matter to them. And you have a, an interesting assignment in that class. You make them go on dates, don't you? Well, it's an extra credit assignment. I stole it from a colleague of mine at Boston College who does require it. She, uh, <laughs> I think Carrie, a woman professor can get away with it. Carrie Cronin was, is a lot more sort of like, she's a boss and I'm not a <laughs> boss. So uh, she's amazing. So uh, I make an extra credit assignment um, and I, uh, I, you know, I, I think I, it's born a lot of, fruit insofar as I think the students have figured out that one of the, the major dimensions of marriage at a, at a natural level is the ability to communicate, the mm -hmm. ability to be in the same room, to look at one another, to not be constantly gazing at one's phone while you're talking to someone, um, to actually know how to talk to someone at all. Uh, my favorite story, one of my, one of my students said that he told his mom about the assignment and that he took this young woman on a date while he was at home and she was so excited. She was waiting at the door when he arrived back and asked, well, how did it go? And he said, well, it was great. You know, I got to her, I, I got to her house and I beat for her, or no, I texted her to come down and uh, his mother hit him. And he said like, well, what, what did I do wrong? And he said, or she said rather in return, um, well, you're supposed to like go to the door. And he realized he didn't know that, right? So he had been so malformed I don't mean that as an insult to him. They forget that you actually could talk to someone and that there's something important that goes in communicated that you actually walk to a front door, knock and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. Um, it's nice. Thank you for letting me take your daughter or your son out mm -hmm. on a date. So, I mean, a lot of it is basic needs to figure out how to communicate, how to engage in relationship, how to have any sense of communion at all. It's human formation, which... You know, we expect that of our of our young men in seminary, but then we throw college students in a dorm and, and think they'll just kind of figure it out. But but to have an adult mentor as a professor kind of even guide that process just as an encouragement, take someone on a date, have a conversation. Um, have any has anybody gotten married as a result of that? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have <laughs> been to a couple of marriages um, from my class or before my class. So, you know, um, uh, some are still together. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to see. But, I, you know, in some ways, I'm as happy when they have a terrible date as right. a great date because they figure out so much about the thing. My favorite is when it, when one of them are like, I t- okay, I asked this person out because I thought they were really hot. And I started to talk to this person and I realized I had did not like them at all. And I realized that like, if someone's really hot, it doesn't mean that you will be able to talk to them, which I thought they knew, but it's great to know that they learned that over the course of a day. Because, I mean, I think, I think we can see in the culture, especially among young adults, Gen Z now, um, there's two things that can happen. There's like discernment paralysis and like decision fatigue. So they're either perpetually, I'm perpetually discerning. And so I never actually like make a move on what I want to do vocationally, professionally, you know, asking someone out or they're very flighty. And so they're, they're not stuck. They're just kind of running around like, like, and part of that's developmentally, they don't have a prefrontal cortex, but also some of it I think is this attitude of, I have to get to a place where I'm finished with all this vocation stuff. And then I'm just living it. And that's, it's the process of being formed as an individual who's in relationship never stops, whether you're married or you're not, or you're, you're dating or you're engaged. I mean, that whole experience of growing in relationship is something that every single person is, is on that journey. Yeah, I think we lie to young people and tell them that life is exciting. And they are desperately afraid of commitment because commitment is partially not that exciting. And, you know, institutions of higher learning, um, sometimes even my own, you know, say like, okay, this is your future. It will be grand. You'll change the world. You'll do this and that. But none of them ever say like, okay, actually what you're going to do probably is none of that in any particular way. You'll mostly, I joke to my students about this. You'll mostly die alone and forgotten um, at some stage. And in 150 years, no one will remember you. No one wants to hear that. But in reality, that's actually what's going to happen to most of us. And the thing that they're afraid is the pure mundaneness and normalcy of the commitment, right? That, that like actually life is not going to be perpetually exciting and that commitment is a kind of mundaneness. They've been formed, right? To expect that an iPhone, we've all been formed to expect that an iPhone has a better iPhone after six months, eight months, that everything is also kind of novel or new, that progress is always an intrinsic good. And so when you say like, well, actually you could marry someone and be with them for 50 years and mostly do a lot of the same things all the time, that's initially terrifying. And I think our task is in a very sort of countercultural way is to call out the great lie that perpetual novelty is a good thing mm-hmm. and that the mundane is a, a bad thing, right? So we have to sort of offer an alternative form of life grounded, I suppose, in kind of stability in, in a sense that things actually often don't change. Well, that's very Benedictine, right? Like that's one of their, I mean, we're back to the beginning. <laughs> I can tell who formed you or who, who you've clung to in life. Um, you have written a number of books. Of all of your books, which one do you want people to go read now that we've had this conversation? It doesn't have to just be the one I referenced, but. <laughs> I do feel that, um, I do feel that since this is with Ave Maria, that it would be wise <laughs> to say off the hook. Although I have a new book coming out with them that's a history of the doctrine of transubstantiation. So that that's gonna be- Oh, a, that's fun. That'll be a good book that will be out. It, it, it's a series that we're launching 
with Ave that that's going to trace uh, oh, doctrines yes. for high schools to use. Yeah, I just uh, I actually saw some some previews of that today because I'm endorsing it. Well, I'm gonna check it out to endorse it. I know what you're talking yeah. about now. <laughs> yeah, so that's our new book, and our, our, so we have this this sort of massive series moving on, and so we're pretty excited by it. So you'll see those coming out regularly now. <laughs> And in post-COVID world, how can people find you to, to bring you in to speak, to, to listen to more of what you're doing? Um, easiest way is, because I'm, I'm now officially an old man, is just email. Uh, you can send me an email at tomalley at nd.edu. That's the easiest way to find me. Excellent. And we'll put your Twitter, which is always a, a nice follow, down in the show notes for folks. Dr. Tim O'Malley, thank you so much for taking the time today to share with us to unpack with stuff. We'll have the link to the article that I referenced down in the show notes as well for everybody. Um, so thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much. I joked with my husband once that most of marriage is just listening to another person chew and cough. Um, he turned to me and said, how romantic, my dear. <laughs> and uh, But that is true. Dr. Tim O'Malley confirmed it. There's a beauty in that mundaneness, though, in that familiarity and that commitment of Catholic family life, even in the midst of a struggle, such as infertility, in the midst of joy, welcoming a new child into your home, in the in-between moments, um, in the moments where you feel like you have a plan and you know how to move forward, and in the moments where everything is completely and totally disrupted, and yet you have the solidity, is that even a word, um, the stability, I guess is a better way to put it, of Catholic families, your own, perhaps those that you were close to, um, those that you have learned from, maybe even in this series. You know, as we've progressed through this entire season, we've had conversations with couples about how to pray together, conversations about how to, to give up some control when it comes to your own family's desires, a conversation about being newlyweds, but, but more importantly, in, in what it was like to prepare for and discern marriage, how to teach the faith to your children, and, and, and what it looks like to really focus on the concepts and the ideas of fatherhood and motherhood, uh, both from a um, raising children in my home perspective and from a spiritual perspective. All of this is part of our, our Ave Explorers series where we're unpacking and looking at, at Catholic family life. And if I've learned anything and doing these interviews and editing these podcasts and, and gathering this content from all our different contributors, it's that there is great joy in the variety of Catholic family life. And when we can lean into and appreciate that diversity and variety, we all benefit, most especially the church. We all benefit um, most especially the body of Christ. And I think that's really beautiful. I would in encourage you to go look at all of the content we've created for Ave Maria Press's Ave Explorer series on Catholic family life by going over to the Ave Maria Press website. Like I always tell you, you can scroll down and you find the entire series, the articles, the videos, the podcasts, the Facebook lives, everything. As always, we'd be grateful for a rating and review of this show so that more people can find it and listen to it. And of course, want to remind you that we have a new show for Ave Maria Press called Ave Spotlight, a Monday morning quick drop podcast with a quick interview and some hot takes about the current moments in the world, an opportunity to learn a little bit more about your faith from a fresh perspective with myself and Father Dennis Strack. So you can check that out, Ave Spotlight. And of course, go over to Ave Maria Press to find everything we've created for this series for Ave Explorers. 